oppression waters the seeds of its own demise. Welcome to The Internet Says It's True, a show where we learn something new every week, part of the WCBE podcast experience, and I am glad you're listening. Uh, I enjoyed last week's episode with Song Salad. Please remember that this week, if you listen to their new episode, you'll hear my guest appearance on their show, and we talk a little bit more about Emperor Norton. You can hear them actually constructing the song that you heard on this show last week. I also have another correction. I mentioned that Emperor Norton had the idea for the Golden Gate Bridge. That was a mistake. It was the Bay Bridge. So thank you for pointing that out. I encourage you, if you ever hear me get something wrong on this program, let me know. This show is about learning something new, and those things have to be the truth. I have to say, it has been a great week with some amazing weather. I spent the evening last night on the back patio listening to music and drinking some wine late into the night, and that is how I learned that raccoons actually enjoy Lana Del Rey. Now let's find out this week's topic. Hey Michael, it's Nikki here. I recently learned when that civil rights icon Marian Anderson famously sang on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial that that concert was never supposed to happen there. I won't say too much more because I don't want to give it away, but I thought you'd appreciate this one. Thanks. Thanks for that, Nikki. I didn't really know much about this, so I spent the week researching it, and what a fantastic story. Marian Anderson closed her eyes, drew a deep breath, and began to sing, My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. She was accompanied by a piano player placed just behind her. In front of her, 75,000 Americans lined Washington, D.C.'s National Mall. They were made up of all skin colors, all levels of prosperity, and came from all over to see the African-American 42-year-old contralto sing. The stage on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial was lined with 200 famous people, politicians, and celebrities, all just to see this one woman perform. On the side of that memorial, Lincoln's words are carved, with malice toward none, with charity for all. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds. The concert that occurred that day is seen by historians as a transformative moment, a prelude to the ongoing healing of this nation in its struggle for civil rights. It was 24 years before Dr. Martin Luther King would deliver his I Have a Dream speech from the very same place. He was only 10 years old at the time. Marian Anderson's career had been on an upward slope. Born in 1897, Marian began her musical training in the Union Baptist Church in Philadelphia. She came from a devout family, a family who would encourage her singing in church. She'd often sing duets with her Aunt Mary, who would go on to encourage her to sing for functions around Philadelphia. After high school, she applied to the Philadelphia Music Academy. She was turned away because it was an all-white school. Her break came when she won a singing competition put on by the New York Philharmonic. Her prize was a performance with the orchestra, and she was given rave reviews. This launched her into a career singing with orchestras all throughout the country. And despite being turned down occasionally because of her race, she eventually made her debut at the famous Carnegie Hall in 1928. Marian Anderson had a voice like no other. Her range was contralto, a very rare voice when it comes to vocal ranges. Hers spanned three octaves, from a low D to a high C. The famous conductor Arturo Toscanini told her that she had a voice heard once in a hundred years. 
The praise that Anderson earned from her voice eventually led her to study and perform throughout Europe. She found great success in Europe and also found that she didn't face some of the racial barriers that were present in the United States. Despite those barriers, upon returning to America, she recorded several best-selling arias and toured theaters throughout the country. So as she stood there on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on that Easter Sunday in 1939, those thousands of people had come to see her sing. She sang patriotic songs and more classical pieces like O Mio Fernando and Ave Maria. But they had also come to be a part of what that moment represented, a coming together in the face of bigotry. See, that concert was never supposed to happen. Not then, and not there. Before we continue the story, I want to tell you this podcast is brought to you by KickTrack, who has been hereby deemed the emperor of this podcast. And because of their generosity, we will bypass the other ads this week. So let's keep going with the story. The Lincoln Memorial Concert on April 9th, 1939 was never supposed to happen. NBC Radio explained during the broadcast of the concert why she was singing at this location. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We're speaking to you from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in the nation's capital, from which point the National Broadcasting Company brings you a song recital by the gifted Marian Anderson, considered by music critics throughout the world as possessing a most outstanding contralto voice. This concert is presented under the auspices of Howard University of Washington, D.C. Miss Anderson will sing from a stage built on the steps of this impressive memorial to America's Civil War president, looking out over the beautiful reflecting pool to the Washington Monument. Marian Anderson is singing this public concert at the Lincoln Memorial because she was unable to get an auditorium to accommodate the tremendous audience that wished to hear her. But that wasn't really the whole truth. Here's the real story. For the previous two years, Anderson had held an annual concert to benefit the Howard University School of Music. She had become so popular that they started reaching out to larger concert venues. Finally, they found a venue that would be perfect Washington, D.C.'s Daughters of the American Revolution Constitution Hall. It held an audience of 4,000 and was the largest room for such a concert in the city. The problem came when the DAR, which owned and controlled the venue, turned her down. They only accepted white artists. Howard University and Marian Anderson knew this policy existed, but hoped that due to her widespread appeal and fame, they would consider lifting their policy. They did not. Their whites-only rule was relatively new, and it was a response to an incident nine years earlier, in which a black singer, Roland Hayes, said he would only perform at Constitution Hall if they used integrated seating because the venue had a blacks-only section in the very back. The DAR agreed to opening up the seating, and the public was outspoken in their disgust. So their response was not only to go back to segregated seating, but to no longer invite black performers to appear on stage at all. Still needing a public venue for the Howard University show, they approached the D.C. Board of Education about using one of the large high schools in the area. They were denied. These were all white high schools. D.C. was very much a racially segregated city. When word got out about the D.A.R. Constitution Hall turning them down, there was a large public outcry. The press spoke out, along with social and religious communities. And when word got to Eleanor Roosevelt, who was a member of the D.A.R., she decided to take a stand. Eleanor Roosevelt had met Anderson three years earlier when she was invited to sing in the Monroe Room of the White House. 
The two had remained friends, and when Roosevelt received word that this organization, to which she had belonged since 1932, wouldn't let her friend sing on stage, she penned a letter to the group. My dear Mrs. Henry M. Robert, I am afraid that I have never been a very useful member of the Daughters of the American Revolution. So I know, so I know it, will, it make will make very little difference to you whether I resign or whether I continue to be a member of your organization. However, I am in complete disagreement with the attitude taken in refusing Constitution Hall to a great artist. You have set an example which seems to me unfortunate, and I feel obliged to send in to you my resignation. You had an opportunity to lead in an enlightened way, and it seems to me that your organization has failed. I realize that many people will not agree with me, but feeling as I do, this seems to me the only proper procedure to follow. Very sincerely yours, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. While this didn't persuade the DAR to change their mind, a Gallup poll conducted at the time found that 67% of people approved of Roosevelt's actions in resigning from the organization. Remember, this is the same public that complained about integrated seating just nine years earlier. The DAR itself is one that had become whites only, despite the fact that the number of African Americans who fought in the Revolutionary War are known to number somewhere between five and 8,000. They weren't represented by this organization. At one point, the Philadelphia Tribune referred to them as, quote, a group of tottering old ladies who don't know the difference between patriotism and putridism, end quote. By now, the issue had risen to the point of a news story that interested the public, and that's what helped raise this small concert to one that would be remembered forever. Very quickly after the DAR denied Marian Anderson access to use their venue, several members of the community, including NAACP figures Walter White and Charles Edward Russell, worked with Anderson's manager to think bigger. They approached Secretary of the Interior, Harold L. Ickes, about holding an open-air concert on the National Mall. Ickes, a white man who had made it his work to advance the plight of African Americans while serving on Roosevelt's cabinet and who had actually been a past president of the Chicago NAACP, agreed to the idea. It was quickly approved by President Roosevelt, and the date was set for that Easter, April 9th. Anderson was given a police escort to the stage that chilly April day. She arrived wearing a mink coat and stood on the stage behind about a dozen microphones that would broadcast her concert not only to the huge crowd gathered to hear her sing, but to be carried live on numerous radio stations throughout the country. She stood for a moment before beginning and seemed to be in awe of the huge crowd. This concert, which was supposed to be for a crowd of 4,000 to benefit Howard University, had now grown into a national event, a celebration of those people who were there to, in a way, speak out against segregation. A sea of 75,000 in person and millions listening at home. Harold Ickes had introduced her. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, in this great auditorium under the sky, all of us are free. When God gave us this wonderful outdoors, 
and the sun, the moon and the stars. He made no distinction of race or creed or color. And 130 years ago, he sent to us one of his truly great in order that he might restore freedom to those from whom we had disregardfully taken it. The concert that took place that day has been hailed as a milestone for civil rights. That same year, Anderson was awarded the Spring Arm Medal for Distinguished Achievement by the First Lady. She'd spend the rest of her life being asked about that day. She was the very first person to ever receive the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1963. She was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal in 1977, the Kennedy Center Honors in 1978, the National Medal of Arts in 1986, a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 1991, and 24 different honorary doctoral degrees. Before we move on in this episode, I thought I'd leave you with that opening song provided by the National Archives. Here's Marian Anderson on April 9th, 1939, singing My Country, Tis of Thee. Now it's time for the part of the podcast where I call a friend, and today I'm calling someone heard in this recording. That was So Percussion performing for NPR's Tiny Desk. So Percussion is a New York-based touring percussion group who has performed in Carnegie Hall and many other famous venues around the world. And I welcome to the show Josh Quillen, a member of So Percussion, director of the NYU Steel Band, and chamber music program, and one of the educators of the steel drum class at Princeton University. It's good to see you, Josh Quillen. It is good to see you too, buddy. How are um, you doing? Really good, really good. You and I have been chatting a lot lately. We have mm-hmm. what we call our, um, I compare it to the, when I was growing up in Urbana, Ohio, there was a group of old men that would sit in the front of the local McDonald's and drink coffee out of those little white coffee mugs mm-hmm. and chat about news of the day. And that's what I can, that's what I consider when you and I text each other early in the morning about issues going on in the world. That's sort of how I feel about that. It makes me happy in my heart that we can do that. Coffee. Like that's, I mean, it happens at, I think it happens at every major chain establishment, like from Cracker Barrel to Dunkin' Donuts to Starbucks to McDonald's. Like I'm getting close. I understand that vibe now. I'm getting closer to that age. And uh, yeah, it's fun to chew the fat. Sure. And for those of you listening, uh, Josh Quillen and I went to college at the Ohio State University together back in the 90s and marched alongside each other in the Ohio State University marching band playing the drums. Um, And then Josh continued with his percussion through 
Akron University of Akron through Yale and now through everywhere in the world. Uh, this guy travels more than I do, which is saying something. We've we've just done an episode about this topic that we're going to talk about. So our listeners already know this answer, but you haven't been listening. So here's your first question. And for this first question, we're playing for an embarrassing story about our days attending Ohio State together. So if you get it right, I'll tell an embarrassing story about you from college. Wait, no, if you get it wrong. If you get it wrong, I'll tell an embarrassing story about you, you can from tell college. it either way. I don't care. Okay. And if you get it right, you can tell one about me. <laughs> okay. All right. Marian Anderson was a contralto vocalist who performed a very famous concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in 1939. The venue was changed from the original venue, however. What was the reason for the venue change? And we have three options for you. Mm -hmm. A. She was supposed to sing at the New York World's Fair, but they didn't have a concert venue. B. She was supposed to perform at DC's Constitution Hall but the Daughters of the American Revolution wouldn't allow her because of her skin color. Or C, she was supposed to sing at the Grand Canyon, but the arid Arizona climate prevented her from being able to sing. I don't want to think the worst in people, but I think it might be B, but I'm going to land on B. You are correct. It is B. I know that you are the type of person who does not think the worst in people, but it is true. It was 1939. Um, which That's why I said it because I knew was, the date. Yeah, like, oh. and it's good twenty-five years before the major push for civil rights in America. Um, but the end result is that seventy-five thousand people attended that concert, and had it been allowed to to go on in Constitution Hall, it would have only been like four thousand people that ever saw that. And so it did create a transformative moment long before. I mean, Martin Luther King was ten years old at this time. And as a kid, cited this concert as something that he remembers being uh, a moving thing in his life. Well, oftentimes oppression uh, waters the seeds of its own demise. So I, I think uh, it doesn't surprise me that that, that it was well attended. And Who said that? Did you say that just now? I just said it right now. I'm sure somebody else said it. And, I, and I'm just sort of like it was in the ether and I just well, said it. But I was going to say if. Think about that a lot. You should tweet that if, if that hasn't been said by someone else, because that is something... You tweet it and claim it as your own, because I, I, I hate Twitter. Okay. <laughs> as we all should. Take all the backlash. That's fine. As we all should. Yeah. I, don't cancel me, because it was Josh Quillen who said it. Um, that, so I don't know what... Uh, you got it right, so you can tell an embarrassing story about me from college. Oh, it's for... Also, okay, so every question I got to do, tell a story. Um, Not every I, question. Each, each question has a different stakes. I, I don't think this was an embarrassing story, but it's one that I say I talk to you a lot about. Like, I'm a big process guy. I love to like know. Like, I'm more interested in the fact that like some performers have like stage fright, you know, but they they manage to figure out how to be on stage for 50 years playing. Like, I'm more interested in the stage fright and how they deal with that, and then how that affects their you know stuff and just the process that how they deal with that stuff. For you, being a magician, I I remember being at a band camp. We were in a cabin staying together, just me and you, and you were trying out some tricks and you like we had to do it like 10 times because I just kept seeing the thing you were trying to hide. It was like a box trick or something. And you kept being like, damn it, let me try it again. And I was and, and I knew the trick. And so I'm trying to pretend like for me, that's I don't like of all the things I see you do online. That's so amazing. And like you're a legit good like you're good at like stage magic, but also the card stuff at the table, like the sleight of hand. Bro, you're 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 it's hard for me to tell you from like the geniuses in the world. But I knew you when, and to uh, me, that, that's really special and perhaps embarrassing for you. Well, but I like well thank you. And what I want you to do is every time you do see me post something, 
whether it's a podcast episode or a video on Instagram of me doing magic, I want you to know that there were still 10 to 20 times of me doing that where I messed it up. Sure. Um, And in the case of live performance pieces, many, many more times than that. I've I've got a new bit in the show that I did for the first time on stage and I've been working on it for months and it's still I've got a few good a few pieces of it are good. A few pieces of it are still bad. And uh, it's awesome to have people to watch to, to because I can do it in the mirror. But magicians have this thing that when they perform and they do the move, whatever the secret move is. We blink. And it's a very common thing among magicians that we blink during the move. It's because we know the move's there and we don't want to see it. And so we, we unconsciously will close our eyes to that moment and not see it. It's kind of like when you edit your own stuff that you write, you read past your mistakes. It's a very similar thing with magic. But also, it's like a weird, like, since the whole, your whole, the whole premise, the foundation upon which you do everything is misdirection. Yeah. And it's like at the very last minute, the only person in the room who has not been misdirected is you. And you still misdirect yourself. Like Isn't right at the last minute, it's like, it's kind of crazy. You're like, and I'm still going to pull the wool over your eyes. You yeah. Know, like, I want to believe. Yeah. And I, I want to see it the way that I want them to see it. And so I'll literally close my eyes during that move. And it's a very common thing. Uh, all right. So you're one for one. Question two. If you get this question wrong, you have to tell me about the worst thing to ever happen to you during a show. If you get it right, I'll tell you one of my horror stories. Here's your question. Marian Anderson first performed at Carnegie Hall in 1928, a venue that you've also performed in. What Russian composer guest conducted the orchestra on the venue's opening night in 1891? Was it A. Peter Tchaikovsky, B. Igor Stravinsky, or C. Ivan Drago? (laughs) It's definitely not a Von Draco. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say uh, I'm terrible with dates and all of my music history professors are going to just cringe, but I'm going to 1891. 1891. I'm going to say uh, Tchaikovsky. You are you correct. Say- it oh. is Tchaikovsky. Thank you, God. Mike, I have a degree from Yale. I should <laughs> okay all right i was like stravinsky i'm pretty sure he was doing stuff in the in the late 20s like you know he was in there okay so So this is according to the website untapped new york conductor walter damrosh knew he needed a big name draw for opening night in carnegie hall tchaikovsky was the it composer of the era he conducted five of his pieces and kept a notebook entitled trip to america that documented his experience in the new world the Carnegie Hall website reports that this small notebook was discovered in one of his suit pockets after he died. And uh, so there are some really interesting things. If you they've found that notebook and translated it and there's stuff like what do American what kind of cigarettes do American men smoke? Where can I go to find the best food? Like the, like things that anyone would think when you're going to a new country. Really interesting stuff. Hmm. Very cool. I'm glad I got that right. You did get that that right. So I'll tell you one of my horror stories. This happened uh, when I was in college and I was performing with a girl that I was dating at the time. And there were there was a a trick. I don't know if you remember this, but I would cut a girl into four pieces and then rearrange her body. Uh, And I would the blades that I put through that box were very real. They weren't sharp, but they were steel and solid. And she had to be in a certain spot. At a certain time, called the Mike Kent. That's what this move is called. The Mike yes. Kent. Yes. Yeah. And so she was not in a certain spot at the right at the right time. Yeah. 
axe was in front of an audience during a show, and I slammed the blade into the back of her head while she was inside the box. Knew it immediately because I heard her fall. And she spent the rest of the trick crumpled into a ball in the very, very bottom of the box, which ironically is where she needed to be for the rest of the trick. Uh, (laughs) It didn't go well. It didn't go well. She was fine in the end, but we broke up. So, well, I'm sorry to hear that, Mike. Um, I'll give you an embarrassing story real quick, though. Uh, My very first marching experience with the Ohio State Marching Band at the Cincinnati Bengals game, I lined the the band was split up on two halves of the field and we marched on and met in the middle. I lined up on the wrong side of the field and didn't realize it until about 45 seconds before we were about to stand up and go. And I (laughs) stood up and ran right across the field, right past Scott Summers, who was the the, the drum major. And he just looked at me like, what in the hell? (laughs) And everybody's hissing at me and like doing the thing that the marching band did. Yeah. And I got in my right spot. And here's, so here's a little thing about perspective and, and perception. Uh, I remember being there. I remember doing that game and I do not remember that. So if that makes you feel better and so, so you don't have the, the marching band nightmares anymore. Uh, <laughs> well, I do remember having, you know, Dr. Woods pointed a little red dot at me as I, as I ran across the field in, in, in when we watched film the next Monday yeah, in the autopsy the next week. <laughs> <laughs> don't be this guy. Don't be this dumb. Oh, fantastic. Well, question three, the running prize for question number three is always one of these stickers. It is a sticker that says, tell me what to Google. Um, The show is no longer called that, but I ordered these stickers before (laughs) I changed the name of the show and I have a stack of them. This is literally 200 of them. Get a Sharpie out. I know. And, you know, I did. This is exciting news for everyone listening. I did just order the Internet Says It's True stickers. So I will have those in two weeks. I will have um, a whole bunch of them. If you want one, let me know and I'll send you one. You're right, Mike. That is exciting news. Yes, it is. It's exciting for me uh, because I can uh, I can let the world know about my podcast by sticking them to elevator floors the world round. (laughs) I love you, Mike. (laughs) Later in her career, Marian Anderson performed at two different presidential inaugurations. The second was in 1961 where she sang the Star-Spangled Banner for the inauguration of which American president? A, Herbert Hoover, B, Gerald Ford, C, John F. Kennedy. Uh, I'm going to say John F. Kennedy. You are correct. You're three for three. I knew he was assassinated in like 63. Yeah. So, yes, I tried to pick two. Ford was like several presidents after him. Uh, Herbert Hoover was several presidents before him. It was like a day with like the mustaches that came down here. Like the mutton (laughs) mutton chop guy. Those were way. Yeah. So uh, the other president that she sang for was Eisenhower's second inauguration in 57. It was a beautiful moment, especially compared with the 2016 inauguration of Donald Trump, where the Star Spangled Banner was performed by Kid Rock. That's just a joke that he did. It was it was actually no, it was actually J- Jackie Ivancho Ivancho. She's a teenager from America's Got Talent. That's who sang for for Trump's inauguration. Okay, and so, how'd she do? I don't know. Didn't watch. I, the, I hear uh, it was the biggest one, crowd ever, though. The, the 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 three girls dancing with the like the American flag tutus, whatever yes. that one. Was. Yes. Da, da, Donald Trump. Oh, that was my favorite. Yeah, should skirts, little little skirts, and big old white cowboy boots. I think in pom poms, maybe. Yes. Every inauguration from here on out. Just do that. Same, and the same they song. get older, they're, yeah, they'll be like 95 years old. Sorry, yeah. put them in the costume. We're doing it. <laughs> okay, fair. I'll watch. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> I'll watch. 
<laughs> so uh, you did get that right. So you will yeah. get a sticker. Congratulations. Question number, question number four. For this question, we're playing for an audio Easter egg in the next episode. This oh means that if you get it wrong, you'll have to say a phrase of my choosing in your next podcast, which is the Concert Honesty Podcast. Oh, Mike, that's very thoughtful of you. Yes. If you get it right, I'll have to say the same phrase in the next episode of this show. And here's the phrase. The phrase is, quote, I have a very specific taste in chocolate milk. Listen, I don't want to write your podcast for you, but if it's me and you. Yeah. We need something with a little bit more bite. Well, that's the thing. A bit but more like, skin in the game, you know what I mean? Like, this is, we, it, we need. But it won't be me and you. It'll be you talking to, unless you invite me back on your podcast, right. it'll be you talking to someone who I don't know and saying that might be a complete non sequitur, which makes it I so much more fun. A little more buy-in. Okay. Okay. A little more, like I have a spe- let's change let's change it from chocolate milk. Like what's something else? Like I have a very well. I, this I, is I a, this is a family friendly show for mint Oreo blizzards from Dairy Queen. I literally judge every other place that sells soft serve ice cream by what Dairy Queen's mint Oreo blizzard is. It's like going to a bar and, and judging them by their old fashioned. You okay. Know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I stand by it. I'm not saying you need to change your, your ways here, but okay. Well, no, that's fair. I'm I'm game. We'll do that. We'll do that one. Uh, and by the way, you have to try my old fashioned. I have been practicing it, and it is great. The wow. the pandemic just I nailed it. <laughs> I don't doubt that. I I cannot wait to get in a room with you and drink an old fashioned. Oh, that would be amazing. Because of racial discrimination, Marian Anderson was not allowed to stay in many hotels while traveling. Which one of these famous people often opened their home to Marian Anderson as a place to stay? Here are your choices: Clark Gable. Charlie Chaplin or Albert Einstein? Clark Gable, Al- Albert Einstein, and the first one was it was it was Clark Gable, Charlie Chaplin, or Albert Einstein. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out, come out of left field here and say Albert Einstein. Left field is the correct answer. When in doubt, Albert- Charlie out. Have you ever heard that phrase? <laughs> when in doubt, what was it? When in doubt, Charlie out. Charlie out. Know, letter C, because statistically, that's that's where standardized tests put the correct answer when they don't. You right, know, which is aren't standardized tests generally are A B C D, correct, or A B C D E. So I always think like the obvious answer with three answers is B because it's in the middle. Mm-hmm. So I try to change them. You have to change it all the time. So but we still fall prey to our internal algorithms, Mike. They're going to put letter C when in doubt. Well, you got it right. Um, <laughs> and my thinking on these two, my hint was that Clark Gable and Charlie Chaplin are both West Coasters, and. This was an East was, Coast thing, Albert Einstein and uh, Marian Anderson. Yeah, because he was like in Princeton at the time, yes. probably. And, and he was an older person at the time. He was he was elderly, but he was very famously um, against the idea of segregation. He was very anti-discrimination. He often hosted her to stay with him. And he once said, being a Jew myself, perhaps I can understand and empathize with how black people feel as victims of discrimination. That was the reason he was in at Princeton was because he was not in Germany, right? Am I am I crazy there? Like, I, I, like yeah, I guess so. Like, That's true. I'm, again, I'm not a historian, but I think that yeah, it doesn't strike it doesn't strike me as odd that he would empathize in that particular time period. The other thing too, like being in Princeton, Princeton isn't given that I'm ensemble in residence there. Like, it's a very musically aware town, and so like the idea that he would be aware of like in a day without social media, yeah idea that he would know somebody was coming through and would have the ability to be like write a letter and be like come stay with me and she would get it and then drive to his home sure. like 
that doesn't strike me as odd knowing that he came out. Yeah, of a lot more thought had to be put into things like that back then because it was a several weeks long process. Yeah, you know, Mike, these are great questions, bro. Thanks, man. We have one more question for you, Josh. This is for all the marbles. If you get this wrong, I'm banning you from the show, never to be asked on again. <laughs> what music are you currently listening to? Well, I don't listen to music. I only listen to the internet says it's true. Uh, <laughs> that is correct. You got this one right. <laughs> no, I will listen. Uh, I I I don't listen to music on a regular basis because I I think about it and play about play it as a business. And I'm not saying that as a like people shouldn't listen to music, but you know, it's like, do you sit around and just do magic when you're not? No, magic? not anymore. I, yeah, I totally like, get it. And I, um, not only that, like, but I don't watch other magicians as often as I used to. Right. You know, my mom taught French and Spanish. It's not like she came home. She was watching French and Spanish, like sitcoms, like she, <laughs> she, she watched Seinfeld, you know, and, and, yeah. and that's, that's the thing. So, but I will say recently, um, I have been listening to, I'll, I'll, there'll be a, a sort of guilty pleasure that I don't care if you think it's bad or not, but it's basically the Dave Matthews channel on Sirius satellite radio. Okay. Is that for and nostalgia I, reasons? Is this bringing you back to college days? Yeah, because you and I had a had a bonding moment over Carter Beaufort. Yeah, drive in, drive out yep, is the song. Out. Like that little six eight thing. Yeah, like I, where I couldn't do that and you could, and I was blown away. And but now as a forty one year old, I've come back to it. I understand why people think about it as like you know it's just stadium rock for bros. I get it. Yeah, I'm sorry. Carter it, Beaufort is an objectively pocketed drummer in a way that that Steve Gadd is a pocketed drummer. Like that man does not put a note out of place. No. And, and, I'm sorry, that is a respectable thing, and I stand by it. And, and another thing about Carter Beaufort is when you watch him, it is absolutely effortless. Mm -hmm. Absolutely effortless. You can tell by, you just look at his hands and how light his grip is on those sticks. Uh, mm -hmm. And his, his grip's a little bit different than most drummers anyway, but it's just like, how does he play the, these intricate rhythms exactly where they should be without making faces? It's incredible. Right. Like it's, I've evolved on Ringo Starr. I don't like his drumming, but I think he's a good drummer. Just because of his ability to keep such metronomic time? It's not even that it's like, it's just, it's, it's, I think if you take Ringo out and sub somebody and it's not the Beatles anymore. And I, I have to respect Interesting. That. Okay. I respect that. I think he gets too much credit for the Beatles sound than, than, than perhaps he, he, but, but that's just a irrational thing I have. But, but anyway, Dave Matthews band. Absolutely. The second thing I'm listening to, and I don't listen to So's projects quite often anymore. Like I don't listen to stuff that I've recorded, not because I'm insecure. It's just sort of like I spent so much time with it that I moved on. But we have an album coming out on June 25th with Caroline Shaw, who is a singer, songwriter, violinist, producer. She's worked with Kanye West. She's awesome. And she's a, she mainly sings on this album. And um, there's a we did a cover of an ABBA tune called Lay All Your Love. Um, she and I do a duet with just steel drums and voice. It's one of my favorite things I think we've done as an, as an ensemble. So I really, really recommend it. It's called let the soil. Okay. By so Caroline Shaw and so percussion. Unbelievable. Um, so your answers are Caroline Shaw and so percussion and Dave Matthews band. I absolutely will go to my grave with that. If I, die, <laughs> I had to die tomorrow, my grave was tomorrow. I, yeah, sure. If I'm 90 and I'm like, uh, I want to rethink that, I reserve the right. But right now, I stand by it. We're going we're gonna to put that on your grave. Uh, on your, on your, your stone, it will say, crash into me. Um, that is, depends on how you die. Lie in our graves. What is Lie that, in our graves. Like? Yeah, well, it depends on how you die. Uh, if, if it's some sort of traffic accident, we might have to give that a second thought. 
I will die of an overingestation of ice chips, Mike. And that is an embarrassing story for another time. For another time. Josh Quillen has been fantastic. Thanks My so pleasure. much for sharing your, your time with me today and every day. My pleasure, bro. And I look forward to our senior coffee on text. Absolutely. Go find So Percussion. Go watch some of their YouTube videos. They've got many YouTube videos of them performing all over the globe. And connect with them on Facebook and all the places where, where you normally connect with music. It's S-O Percussion. Thanks again, Josh Quillen. Take it easy, man. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks to Nikki for the show topic, Josh Quillen for being my guest, and Sarah J. Storer for voicing the part of Eleanor Roosevelt. I found some kid on the street who I told to say the following. Thank you for listening to The Internet Says It's True. Don't forget to join up on Patreon if you want to see the unedited video of the guest appearance or to hear bonus episodes. You can do that at patreon.com slash Kent. Also, if you learned something that you didn't already know from the show, please visit iTunes and leave us a review with five stars and a few words. That's the rule. You gotta do it. That helps us a ton because that's how the algorithm works to get the podcast suggested to more people. And that way we can keep learning something new if the internet says it's true. The Internet Says It's True would like to thank the Patreon subscribers whose monthly contributions help make this show possible. Sean Brown, Catherine Morgan, Taylor Hurt, Tony Ford, Bryce Swanson, Eugene Anderson, Matt McVeigh, Jim Martin, Joanne Martin, Josh Van Allen, and this show's new official emperor, Kick Track. The show is written and produced by me, Michael Kent. The theme song is by Finite Music Forge, and additional music this week was from Asher Falero, Nate Blaze, and the National Archives. All audio clips in this episode are used for education and commentary and used under Fair Use Title 17 USC Section 107. You can listen to past episodes by searching for The Internet Says It's True wherever you get your podcasts, and you can see bonus content at patreon.com slash Michael Kent. <laughs>